Well, if you can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 2, 11 through 14. Chapter 2, 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Amiot, I, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when they came, he began to shrink back and separate himself, fearing the party of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. When I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before everyone, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? Years ago, there was a movie with Bill Murray called Groundhog Day, and Murray plays a TV weatherman named Phil Connors who finds himself living the same day over and over again. The world Connors suddenly finds himself has its advantages. He has hundreds of chances to get things right, Phil learns how to speak French, he learns how to skate on the ice, play jazz on the piano, he becomes the kind of person with whom his beautiful colleague Rita might fall in love with. And yet, in spite of the advantages of this Groundhog Day world, Phil's life soon turns into a nightmare. A deep loneliness overcomes him because he's the only one in in Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, who knows that something has gone terribly wrong with time. Nobody seems to remember the previous iterations of the day. A new day for Rita is the same day for Phil. They live in two different realities. What happens to Phil in one day leaves no trace in her day. Their senses of who they are and how they relate to each other are totally different. Phil knows Rita really well, but Rita, but to Rita, Phil is this new guy that she's trying to figure out whether she likes or not because he learns more about her day after day while she knows him only today. Time, reality, and their identity are each formed by memory, but Phil never forgets and Rita forgets everything daily. From Phil's perspective, she and everyone else in this town in Pennsylvania is suffering from amnesia. And the experience of Phil Connors in Groundhog Day is similar to what the Apostle Paul experienced in his life in ministry from the time he wrote the book of Galatians. It seemed to Paul that everyone he knew had suddenly forgotten the gospel, except for him. He wakes up one morning to, to learn of a report that the Galatian churches that he has planted are experiencing this gospel amnesia. He, he says he's marveled. He's, he can't believe that this is happening. He goes to Jerusalem to confirm his gospel, only to realize that the epicenter of Christianity, there is some confusion about the nature of the grace of the gospel. And so he needs to make great efforts to convince everybody about this free and bountiful grace. 
today's passage, Paul writes more about this gospel of amnesia. Uh, it's not just the Galatian church that has forgotten the gospel. It's, it's, it's Peter. Peter has forgotten the gospel. It's, it's the members of the church in Antioch. It's even Barnabas. See, when it comes to the gospel, the church struggles with this Groundhog Day phenomenon. Time and time again, the church completely forgets the very source of her life. Over and over, era after era, the church goes through these gospel Groundhog Days where it seems like everyone has forgotten the good news of Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. What is the Reformation, by the way? What's so special about October 31st, 1517? The church woke up and remembered the, the grace of the gospel, and we think that is wonderful, but if you think about it, it's really kind of strange. Because it makes you ask the question, how in the world did the church ever forget the gospel in the first place? What happened to the church in those, those immediate centuries before the Reformation is like, is like my son coming to me and saying, Dad, uh, what's my name again? I would say to what? That's your name again? It's like my wife asking me, uh, how and in church history is, listen, just as common today for us here as it has been for the past 2,000 years. The book of Galatians, don't make this mistake, is not some ancient letter for some obscure problem that has very little relevance today. In chapters 1 and 2 of Galatians, Paul is not writing about these isolated instances of gospel amnesia. He's, he's trying to convey, no, this is a phenomenon for the ages. Galatians is a book for the church for all time. And it is just as relevant for us today as it was for the original recipients of the letter. Because if there's one basic fundamental truth that we Christians are most prone to forget, it is of, it is of all truths, the gospel. We are constantly going into the, into the trap of thinking and feeling and living as if we need to do more to secure and earn God's love for us. Or we give up on the Christian life because we think it's just too hard to ever earn this love. So why even try? And both of these approaches to Christian living reveal this innate gospel amnesia that believers are prone to fall under. And that means we need Galatians like a fish needs water. We need this book like a flower needs the rain and the sun. And so my goal for this morning is to help us never forget the gospel. Never forget the gospel. I have two points for you this morning. Number one, the condemnation of gospel amnesia. And number two, the legalism of our fallen natures. Verse 11, the condemnation of gospel amnesia. Paul first announces his actions in verse 11, and then he explains why he did what he did in verses 12 through 14. If you look at the first word of verse 11, 
uh, you see the conjunction, the, this conjunction of contrast, the word but, and he is contrasting uh, verses 11 through 14 with verses 1 through 10 of chapter 2. And if you remember back from a few uh, weeks ago in the first 10, chapter, first 10 verses of chapter 2, Paul told about the story of his trip to Jerusalem. The, the trip took place uh, 14 years after he was saved on the road to Damascus. And it was on that road that Paul was converted and he was called to be an, an apostle. It was on that road where he, he received the gospel of grace. It was during Paul's first missionary journey and and uh, after he had been saved, uh, Paul had planted churches in the southern Galatia region. But quickly after those churches were planted, false teachers had snuck into the gathering and they began spreading a, a false gospel of works. That you couldn't be saved just by faith alone. You need to, to do the works of the law. You need to be circumcised. You need to practice kosher dietary regulations. You need to observe the Sabbath. All of the law was was required to to be a follower of Christ. And this false gospel had began to, to steal the hearts and minds of the Galatians from away from their first love. And the, and the argument that these teachers were making was that he, Paul had corrupted the gospel. He, Paul, he, he, you see, Paul, he, he, he got it from Peter and the rest of the apostles, and then when he got it, he took out the law for some reason. And so Paul began his defense in the second half of chapter 1, and, and he defends himself by saying, you know what? I didn't get my gospel from the, the apostles. I got my apostolic calling and my gospel of grace from Jesus himself on the road to Damascus. This was direct revelation. I didn't mess it up. I got it from Jesus. And so this independent nature is what Paul defends himself. Look at chapter 1, 11, and 12. He, he says, For I make known to you, brothers, that the gospel which I'm, I am proclaiming as good news is not according to man. For I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Paul proves his independence in the next verses by reminding the Galatians of his Dramatic conversion. Man, I was a Pharisee of Pharisees. I was pursuing the law like nobody else. I am the last person in the entire universe that would, would, would purposely take out the law from the gospel. I love the law. And so the only explanation why Paul is preaching the gospel of grace is because Jesus had powerfully converted him and given him this gospel of free grace. I didn't receive it from, any, from anybody. I didn't mess it up. And so in chapter 1, he says, look at, my, look at my itinerary for the last 14 years. Look at where I, I traveled to. I never went to Jerusalem. I, I went for 14 days, talked with Peter, and, and we, we, had, we, had, we had like hummus and, and pita bread, and that's all we did. There wasn't enough time to receive all this theology I'm teaching you. The, the, the churches of Judea, they didn't know, they didn't know who I was. The, the, the centrality of where the, the churches were, were, were all around, where the gospel was spreading, I didn't interact with them. That proves I received my gospel theology from Jesus himself. The false teachers, that's a lie, Paul is saying. And then from chapter 2, Paul continues to, 
to defend his gospel independence. He says, you know, when I went to Jerusalem 14 years later, uh, I wanted to confirm my gospel. I brought Titus up with me, who was a Gentile. And, and some of these guys, some of these false teachers had snuck into these meetings and they tried to uh, 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 pressure Titus to be circumcised in order to gain his salvation. And I resisted him. I said, no way is that going to happen. I was, even the apostles in Jerusalem, they were trying to convince me as well. And I said, no, Titus is not going to be circumcised because he has believed in Christ, he has been forgiven, and that's enough. And yet, once all these deliberations happened, once all these arguments happened back and forth, the apostles agreed that my gospel was the true gospel, and so we left hand in hand. And so Paul, in chapter 2, when he begins this verse, he says, but, he's contrasting something. He's saying, yes, uh, uh, in Jerusalem, in verses 1 through 10, Peter and I agreed about the essence of, of the gospel, but in verses 11 through 14, there was a different story. And in 11 through 14, Paul continues this theme of his gospel independence, and he proves it by the boldness it took Paul to rebuke Peter. Peter rebukes Paul in verses 11 through 14. Peter is one of the early pillars of the church, one of the inner circle of Jesus. And Paul is proving that, listen, I'm no no follower of Peter. Uh, When Peter says, uh, stand when Peter says jump. Uh, I don't. I don't jump. I, I. I'm no lackey. No. When P, when I saw Peter playing the hypocrite about the gospel, I rebuked him, and I rebuked him to show and prove that the gospel has the highest authority, even over the apostles. My gospel didn't come from Peter. I wasn't subservient to the apostle Peter. And there's another point, however. Paul is making in these four verses this morning, and it's this. If Peter can stray from the gospel, if the Galatian churches can forget the gospel, if the members of the church in Antioch can forget the gospel, if Barnabas can forget the gospel, then so can you and I very easily. So what is the first thing that must happen when we stray from the truth of the gospel? Opposition. Opposition. Look at verse 11. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Face to face opposition against the This gospel amnesia we are so prone to experiencing. That's what I'm doing right now. In this sermon, I'm opposing our our gospel amnesia that we suffer with all the time. The word opposed in verse 11 was originally a military and political term, but it it came to be used more broadly of any deliberate situation where opposition to beliefs or actions were involved. You see the same word in Ephesians 6, uh, verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day. 
I am resisting some of you who are experiencing gospel amnesia. I'm saying, turn back to the gospel of Christ. And so sometimes this opposition needs to take the form of a public sermon every Sunday morning. Sometimes this opposition needs to happen when personally, when you see a brother or sister falling away from the truth of the gospel. But when do we fall away? What does falling away from the gospel look like? Well, every spiritual issue, every spiritual problem, every time we fall into sin, every time we indulge into, in our sinful pleasures, every time we ignore God and run away from Him, every time we play the hypocrite, it's because we've strayed from the truth of the gospel. Yes, all of those things are the results of a failure to pray and read the Bible and, and go to church. But beneath all of that, ultimately, many of our spiritual failures are the result of having forgotten the truth of the gospel. And it is this gospel amnesia that led to Peter doing what he did in these verses. Verse 11, Paul says that Peter stood condemned. And this word here is, is different from the words you find in other places where the New Testament writers uh, use, the, uh, use that word condemnation to describe eternal judgment, eternal condemnation. It's a different Greek word here. It's not as strong here. It's not a word for, just, uh, it's not a word for judgment. It's a word for guilt. It, it's a word for cult, culpability. Peter is saved. Peter is justified. He can never lose his salvation. But Peter, right now, he's guilty. He's blameworthy. And, and, and this type of gospel amnesia deserves opposition. It deserves a, a rebuke. Whenever a Christian who is justified by grace, but acts as if he needs to be justified by his own uh, good works, that needs to be opposed. The word uh, for, for this, uh, the English word opposed is kata gnosko. Kata is the prefix against. Gnosko is to be known. And so you put it together, it means to be known against. God knows you, but this, when we act like legalists, his knowledge is against you. How do we oppose gospel amnesia? We remind you of the gospel every Sunday. I tell the guys who pray here, I say, include the gospel. Pr uh, 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 prayer of praise, include the gospel. Prayer of thanksgiving, include the gospel. Uh, a prayer of confession, definitely include the gospel. Uh, prayer of supplication, include the gospel. Why? Because you forget it every week. You forget it all the time. Why does this gospel amnesia, why does it happen so often? Why does it happen so easily? Point number two, the legalism of our fallen natures, verses 12 through 14. The legalism of our fallen natures. The timing, the, the, this, this incident in, in, in verses 11 through 14 most likely happened during the famine visit of Paul and Barnabas in Acts 11. Verses 1 through 10, 1 through 10 of chapter 2 of Galatians, it's describing this visit that happened in Acts 11. 
This incident with Peter probably happened right after Paul had returned. Paul and Barnabas had returned from their first missionary journey. Uh, Peter had had already arrived a little earlier. And so when Paul enters the church, he sees Peter acting the role of a hypocrite. This this incident in 11.14 probably happened right before Acts 15 and the Jerusalem Council. It happened right before Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians, right before Acts 15. Cephas had come to Antioch uh, while Paul and Barnabas were away. The moment he arrived, he was eating with the Gentiles. He was having, you know, he was having bacon. He was having, you know, pork chops. He was he was eating non-kosher, uh, non-Jewish food. And then it says, it says in verse 12, uh, he began to shrink back when these certain men from James came to, to Antioch. They had probably heard these rumors that, you know what, Peter? Peter's having bacon all the time. Peter's, Peter's acting like a Gentile. What is going on with him? And so... These men from James, James knew the gospel, of course, but uh, uh, these men from James had a, had a looser grasp. They had a, a looser understanding of the gospel of grace. For Peter, Peter had always grown up eating uh, uh, according to the regulations of Leviticus, according to the law. He had always followed this mosaic uh, standard of diet, and, and and then in Acts chapter 10, it, it all changes. He's in Joppa. He's just hanging out, you know, on the porch. And then he has a vision of, of, the, the, of the heavens splitting open. And there's a, a sheet of these unceremonial, un, these, these uh, unclean ceremonial animals all on the sheet. And he hears a voice and it says, Peter, rise up and eat. Peter says, I've never, I've never eaten this kind of food, Lord. The voice hears it again. Hears the voice again. Rise up and eat. And then go to Cornelius, this, this, uh, this, this Gentile Roman soldier in Caesarea, share the gospel with him. Eat whatever he puts on your table. And so Peter goes to Cornelius' house in Caesarea. He sees Cornelius receive the Holy Spirit after he receives the gospel. And guess what? Cornelius is saved, and he doesn't get circumcised. He doesn't uh, change his diet of eating kosher food. And yet, Cornelius is born again. And Peter is amazed. And he starts eating with the Gentiles there. He gets back to Jerusalem. The word is spread. And he says, and they say to him, in verse, in verse Acts 11, you, Peter, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. And Paul and Peter, in response, tells them about the vision. And this is how Luke records the end of this ordeal in Acts 11, 17, and 18. Peter says, Therefore, if God gave them the same gift as he gave to us also after believing in the Lord Jesus, who was I that I, I could prevent God's way? And when they had heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, well then, well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. 
Remember, this is the big church. There are pockets. There are uh, different factions. There are some people who get it, but there are still some people who don't understand the relationship between the gospel of grace and the, and, the, and the law and the ceremonial laws. How do they all work together? There's still a lot of confusion, and that's why we see what we see in verses 11 through 14 in chapter 2. Even though Peter is clear about it, not everybody else is clear about it. And so these men come, and Peter, the whole time he's eating with the Gentile believers. He's fellowshipping with them. He's enjoying their company. But as soon as these men from James arrive in Antioch, he separates himself from these Gentile believers. He is afraid of these men for some reason. And he begins eating with the Jewish Christians exclusively. Old Testament dietary law. Whatever confusion the party from James may have had, Peter can't claim the, the same kind of ignorance. He received a vision from God. How can you, how can Peter uh, uh, mess up like this? So he's not motivated by, by ignorance. What is he motivated by? Look at verse 12. Fearing the party of the circumcision, he was afraid. Peter can claim no ignorance. Look at verse 13. Peter is, is, is playing the role of a hypocrite. Paul says two times in verse 13, hypocrisy. This is hypocrisy. Verse 14, Peter is not walking straight forward about the truth of the gospel. By doing this, Peter was communicate, communicating to the rest of the Gentile believers that, that they were not truly justified. That they were not genuine, bona fide believers yet because they needed to keep these Old Testament laws to really be a believer. That's what Peter was communicating by his separation from these Gentile Christians and his exclusive fellowship and dining with these Jewish professing believers who believed that you needed to keep the law plus faith in order to be saved. And so this legalism of Peter's old life quickly resurfaces because before Peter came to the knowledge of Christ, he was a legalist like everybody else was in Israel. He thought he could earn salvation by keeping the law. So whatever first motivated Peter exactly uh, to, to, to capitulate here, Peter is experiencing this gospel amnesia partly because he was so used to legalism in his life before he was saved. Legalism was so natural to him like it is natural to us. It was part of his fallen DNA like it is for, for our fallen DNA. What is legalism, though? What is legalism? Well, the, the, the typical answer that we're familiar with is that legalism is the attempt to earn or maintain uh, your salvation through the keeping of the law, through moral good works. But legalism is so much more complicated than that. It's so much deeper than that. The infrastructure of legalism is more complex. It's more di diversified than that simple definition su suggests. The roots of legalism, they, they burrow deep within the soil of our flesh. 
And, and even though you, you can't see the, the, the fruit of legalism very obviously in our lives, those roots run really deeply. I remember when I first moved into our new house, there was this dead stump of a little tree right in the front of our house. It was like this, this like, like three feet tall and this thin, and it was just dead. And then when I cut it, it's kind of a, a thick base, the roots, <laughs> I mean, those roots were like monster roots. I mean, I, 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 it's still there. The roots are still there. I had to just dump dirt, dirt over it. Legalist, legalism colors everything about how we understand Christ, the Bible, the Christian entangled in the spider web, the spider web of legalism. They, cl- they come close to the grace of God, but when they get too close, they veer away. When did legaliz- legalism begin? It began in the garden. It, it began in the beginning of time. Legalism comes from Satan. Legalism is one of Satan's most powerful weapons he uses against believers. And, and we see it when the, when the serpent convinced Adam and Eve that, that God wasn't the God they thought he was. Originally, if you remember, God in Genesis 2, he had revealed the magnanimous, this magnanimous, generous love. He had placed Adam and Eve in this lush and bountiful garden. He gave them free access to every tree in the garden except for one tree. And the serpent took advantage of this one exception, and he used that one exception to paint a different picture about God. And he used that one exception, that one tree, to distort the clarity of God's Word. He said to Eve, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? What kind of miserly God would not let you eat any of the trees here? And Eve said, no, no, no. He said just one tree, not every tree. And he said, if, they, if, we, if we eat from that one tree, we'll die. And then S- Satan immediately challenges the authority of Scripture. He says, you will not die. God's lying to you. God's lying to you. See, first Satan says God is a miser. He doesn't love you. He's trying to rob you of all your joy. And he's a liar. And Eve, very quickly, she stopped hearing the word of God with her ears. She began looking at that one tree that she couldn't have. And that was the strategy. Get Eve to focus on that one negative command, and he succeeded. When Eve took from the tree that she was forbidden to go to, all she saw was that one negative command. To Eve, the focus of that one negative command distorted her understanding of God's character to the degree that God went from being an all-sufficient generous provider to to going to this negative lawgiver, this judge who threatened her with death if she disobeyed him. In the heart of Eve, the law of God had now been separated from the person of God. 
the, the law of God became extracted from the generosity of God's character. And now she thought that God was against her. And the result of this distorted view of God was that if you want anything from this miserly, cruel, and distant God, you better pay for it. You better earn it. You better work for it. But what was the truth? The truth of God's nature and the, and the truth of God's, God's commands were far different than what Satan had lied about. When God had talked to Adam and Eve, what did He say? He said, you know what? I love you so much. I'm going to give you this entire world and a garden. And, and, and you can have that from any, any tree of the garden except for one. And I'm creating this world so that I can have fellowship with you. So I can have this relationship with you. So that I can, I've made you in my image so that you can enjoy what I enjoy. And there is this one tree that you can't have, but that one tree that you can't have isn't because I, I, I have something against you. It's not because I don't love you. That one restriction is there to help you trust in me. I want you to grow in your faith, in my goodness, in my, in my love for you, and I want you to demonstrate that love by obeying my command to not eat from the one tree in the garden. I want to grow your trust in me. I want to grow your faith in me. That was the reality. That was the truth. So when Adam and Eve broke God's commands, did they see that kind of God? No, they, they saw an ogre, a tyrant, a miserly God who was committed to making their lives miserable. And as a result of the deception of Satan, Eve was left with this deep suspicion about the Father's love and the, the Father's goodness. And instead of loving and obeying her magnanimous Father, she acted like sometimes my kids act. You know, sometimes I give my, I give my, I, I spoil my kids. I give them a lot. And you know what sometimes they say? You don't give me anything. You don't give me You've got 2,000 toys in the living room. I don't give you anything. And that's what Eve was saying. God, you don't give me anything. That one tree I can't have. You make me work for everything I get. And she exhibited the same spirit of the older brother in the story of the prodigal son. You remember the prodigal son? The older son, at the end, he was angry because his father had welcomed his prodigal brother home with favor and honor and riches when his prodigal brother did nothing to deserve it. And the error of the older brother was this. He had thought that his relationship was based on works the entire time when the reality was the father's relationship was always based on grace. It was always based on mercy. So when the brother saw his father's grace being poured out on his prodigal brother for nothing, when he saw this grace that he thought that he had worked for all his life, angered him. What was the second brother's problem? What was the older brother's problem? He 
You didn't know the Father. You didn't know the gracious nature and character of his Father. He had this distorted perception of his Father. It was this legalistic spirit that led to Eve's antinomianism. Antinomianism is kind of what we commonly think is the opposite of legalism. Legalism is what we think, uh, you know, we earn our salvation, and antinomianism means, well, because God is so loving and and good, he would never give us a law that we had to obey, so I'm just not going to obey the law. When you separate the law of God from the loving character of God, this is what you're left with. You either turn to legalism, where you're trying to earn every blessing and favor from a miserly God who would never just bless you out of his gracious character, or you turn to antinomianism, where you reject God's law because you can't see how his law could possibly be related to his gracious nature and character. Both legalism and antinomianism are rooted in a mistaken understanding of God's character. They're the same thing. Theologian Gerhard Vost defined legalism this way. Legalism is a peculiar kind of submission to God's law, something that no longer feels the personal divine touch in the rule it submits to. In other words, legalism separates the law of God from the person of God. It separates the two. And when we lose sight of God's loving nature behind His commandments for for us, His commandments become burdens. When we separate the law of God from the person of God, His commandments become burdens that you want to just get rid of. Or they become bargaining chips you collect in order to blackmail God into giving you what you think you're owed. Legalism is not just a false way of relating to God's law. It's rooted in our distorted understanding of God, the giver of His law. Legalists attempt to earn God's love and forgiveness by keeping the law because they can't imagine a kind of God who would love and forgive them at no cost. And there are those who sooner or later, they end up failing to earn God's blessing and earn God's favor, and so they respond by just giving up and breaking God's law. They end up thinking, you know, all this time I was obeying God, it was just a dirty trick by Him. But the truth of the matter, listen to me, is that God doesn't give everything you want when you obey His law because He wants you to know He doesn't work that way. He doesn't operate in this kind of merit-based economy. Okay, I do this, God, you give me that. I do this, you give me that. No. God's economy is an economy of free grace. He gives, God gives us everything we need in the gospel out of His free grace in Christ. And the laws He commands us to to follow, they flow out of His gracious character to keep us from harm, to help us experience joy. His laws teach us to trust in the goodness of His character. And so we are always 
of attempted to sin in two different ways. And, and we see it most clearly when we're experiencing a, experiencing a trial. We, we mistakenly think that hard times are in direct proportion to how much God loves me. So we think and we, or we feel, you know what? I'm going to try harder to obey God's commands this time so that he loves me more, so that he gives me what I want. And that's what we call legalism. Or we're tempted to think or we're tempted to feel, man, I've worked so hard to keep God's commandments so that he would love me more by giving me what I want. But because I didn't get what I want, well, I'm going to forget about him. I'm just going to sin to my heart's content because no matter how hard I try, he won't give me what I want. And that's what we call antinomianism. Antinomianism is just another form of legalism because it has the same small view of a petty and tyrannical God. When you think or feel that God has let you down, we are not to respond by turning into a legalist or turning into an antinomianist. We don't try to earn God's love by keeping His law. And we don't break God's law because we think we, we have failed to earn His love. We must avoid these two dangerous downfall, these two dangerous pitfalls. How do you respond when you feel God has disappointed you? How do you respond when God has when you feel that God has let you down? You respond by trusting in the gospel. You trust that God's love was proven without a doubt for all time when He sent Jesus to die for your sin. You believe that your righteous standing before the Father is not dependent on your performance, but in Christ's perfect life, death, and resurrection. You believe that God has given, given you everything good and necessary in Christ. Nothing more is needed for you to experience the fullness of joy every day, no matter how hard your circumstances are, because listen to me, you have everything in Christ. And because you have everything in Christ, you're free to obey Him, not because you want something more from Him, I just told you, you already have everything in Christ. You, you don't uh, stop obeying His Word. You don't stop trusting Him because you didn't get what you wanted from Him. You already have everything you need in Christ to be completely full of joy and peace and love. We obey God's love because we want to show Him how much we love Him for having given us everything in Christ. You have everything in Christ because of the Gospel. And so what happens when you feel that the Lord has let you down? You repent for believing in lies about God and you worship Him for the Gospel. You trust Him because of the Gospel. You pray to Him because of the Gospel. You serve Him because of the Gospel. You love other people because of the Gospel. You read the Bible to remind yourself of all that you have because of the Gospel. The cure for legalism, the cure for antinomianism is always the Gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, you, you find 
both legalism and antinomianism. There are certain men from James, verse 12. There's this party of the circumcision who believe that God is so limited, limited in his love and grace, they need to supplement God's contribution to their salvation with their own contribution of personal merit. They have separated the law of God from the love of God. These are the legalists. And there is Peter, the antinomian, who is breaking God's law. Peter is intentionally breaking his word, and he knows better. He believes in the gospel, but he is acting contrary to the gospel. And again, antinomianism is just another form of legalism, like I said earlier. It's the same kind of distortion of God's character as you separate the law of God from the love of God. And so in this moment, in verse 12, Peter, he fears these men from James more than he fears God. For some reason, Peter wants something from these men that God is unwilling to give him. He already has everything in Christ, but he wants more, so he sins against the Lord to get it. Maybe Peter wanted these men's respect. Maybe he feared losing their respect. Maybe he was afraid of the consequences of, of the Jews finding out that he was mingling with the Gentiles. Whatever he wanted from the Jews, it was more than God was willing to give him, so he breaks God's law to get it. And so you have two forms of legalism in, in these verses. Legalism is a, is a distortion of God's character. And look at verse 13. Illegalism is, is contagious. Verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy. The rest of the Jewish Christians in the church of Antioch joined Peter's hypocrisy with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. This is, this is Groundhog Day for Paul. Everybody seems like they have forgotten the gospel except for Paul. Barnabas? They had just gotten back from their first missionary journey together preaching the gospel. And, and Barnabas is, has, has caught this gospel amnesia? Legalism is highly contagious. It's deadly for the welfare of your soul. It kills joy and peace. And it happens so easily. When pastors teach in such a way that communicate that God's love for you is dependent on your obedience to Him, they are spreading this gospel amnesia like a virus. When pastors teach in a way that insinuates that God's grace means you can live any way you want to, that kind of antinomianism spreads like a wildfire. It maims, it scars, it stunts the believer's spiritual growth. All it takes is for a few legalists to ruin an entire church. All it takes is one legalistic pastor to ruin an entire community of saints. And here, it's, it's the Apostle Peter who was validating this legalism. And this is massive because the church is still in its early growth. And what Peter is doing now, he is threatening the entire mindset of the early church. He is threatening the entire culture of the, of the early church. And so Paul is forced to publicly rebuke Peter in verse 14. Paul says in verse 14, 
But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the Gospel, I said to Cephas before everyone, if you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like the Jews? Peter, your legalism is compelling the rest of the church to become legalists as well. Peter, before these men from James came here, you were living in the freedom of the Gospel like the rest of the Christian Gentiles here. You weren't, you, you weren't living as if the law saved you like these Jews believe. How is it that you're now pressuring and influencing these Gentile Christians who were living in the freedom of the, of the Gospel to now live under the bondage of trying to earn God's grace through the law? Peter, how did you forget the Gospel so quickly? Paul says in verse 14, he says in the beginning of verse 14 that they were not straightforward about the truth of the Gospel. The word straightforward is the Greek word, Greek word orthopodeo. We get the word orthopedics from this word. It means to walk uprightly. It means to walk straight. The ESV says that in verse 14, their conduct was not in step with the truth of the Gospel. What, what truth? What, what, what particular truth is Paul referring to in verse 14? The truth of the gracious nature of the Gospel. The truth of the free grace of the Gospel. They were acting in a way that grace needed to be earned. They were, they were living in a way that grace needed to be bought instead of being a free gift received by faith alone. Again, we're, we're always tempted to either play the legalist or to play the antinomian. But it's, it's during the hard times when you see it most clearly in your own heart and life when you encounter setbacks, when you respond with, and, when, and in those trials, in those hard circumstances, you, sometimes you can respond with this attitude, well, you know what? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to obey even harder. I'm going to even do more things for God. Not because of simple faith. Not out of love. But because you... You want, to, you want to somehow earn God's love. You think hard circumstances are in direct proportion to God's love for you. And so when you live like this, you're outwardly doing things, but when you're motivated because you're just trying to earn God's love and favor, Paul says you're not walking in step with the Gospel. Or when hard times come and you sin, because you fail to see that God's love comes from His loving heart, you're also not walking in step with the Gospel. It's very obvious when your heart has lost the Gospel as the orienting center of your life. You just have to examine your heart. You have to look at your actions for five minutes and it will become very obvious to you. How do you respond in hard times? Do you respond by saying, okay, I, just, I need to work a little harder the blessings will come. Do you respond with, forget this. He doesn't see my works anyways. I'm going to just sin however I like. Or do you respond with saying, by saying to your heart, I'm going to trust in the gospel. 
I'm going to believe that God's love for me has been proven on the cross. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, I have everything in Christ. And I'm going to praise Him. I'm going to worship Him. I'm going to trust Him. And I'm going to obey His will. What's the solution when you fall into legalism? What's the big solution? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. And next Sunday, in verses 15 through 21, Paul lays it all out. Next Sunday, Paul, in verses 15 through 21, he says, this is a gospel banquet that I'm inviting you to. I'm inviting all legalists, all antinomians to this gospel banquet where I lay out this deep and rich gospel theology. And so next Sunday is probably the most important passage in the entire letter to the Galatians in verses 15 through 21 that we'll cover next Sunday, we, we reach the mountaintop of gospel glory. And so you don't want to miss that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, our hearts are so prone to trying to earn your love. Our hearts are so prone to protesting by sinning because we don't get what we want, because we, we mistake what your love looks like. Father, your love doesn't look like giving us whatever we want whenever we ask. It doesn't look like that. Your love looks like a bloody cross. It looks like Jesus dying and praying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And so, Lord, would we operate out of, out of that, that day, the day when Jesus died and rose again? Would, would our lives flow out of that moment? And would our, would our works demonstrate that we're not trying to earn anything, no, Father, our works are just telling you that we love you, that we thank you because you did it all, you paid it all, and we have everything in Christ. And so, Lord, let us never forget the gospel. Let us never uh, act in a way where we're, we're trying to play the role of Pharisees and legalists. Father, help us love the gospel more. We ask through the study of Galatians. In Jesus' name we pray.